Welcome to How the Fuck Did You Get So Confident? My name is Rebecca, and this is the podcast where I interview my friends and peers to figure out, well, how the fuck they got so confident. In this episode, I Skype with director, producer, and speaker Darius West. We chat about the power of purpose, failure being a part of success, finding your identity, and more. This is How the Fuck Did You Get So Confident? with guest Darius West. Hey, Darius. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. What's good? <laughs> got my, uh, my coffee here. Mm. I got my, uh, my tea, my daily tea. What kind of tea is it? Uh, it's uh, just English breakfast tea. Mm. I always, you know, add my lemon and honey. Mm. And so that's my... That's my jam. Well, thanks for chatting with me today. Uh, as I was mentioning, usually um, we talk about confidence in this podcast, but in light of everything that's going on in the world, uh, we can talk about whatever we want to talk about. Yeah. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Um, we can start with confidence and then just sort of weave in and out um, as yeah. we see fit. And uh Thanks again for it's so good to see your face. <laughs> right? Yeah, see you. It's, so it's good been a while. To see you. Um, it's been a little while. So, would you consider yourself a confident person? I guess that's my first question for you. Definitely, definitely. Um, I, I've been a confident person for quite a while. How did you? Were you a confident kid, or is this something that you've cultivated in adulthood? I, I think it started um, probably when I was uh, about fifteen or sixteen. Mm. Uh, my confidence level began to um, tremendously increase, and I pay a lot of it to um, a message that I heard by Dr. Miles Monroe, who was my who was my spiritual mentor uh, as as a young man. Who, who he passed away at 60. Him and his wife were in a plane crash, uh, you know, about five or six years ago. But when I heard his message about the power of purpose, mm. uh, and um, he spoke that first. That was the first time that the 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 term purpose, or just the revelation of understanding what purpose is, came to like the church and really the society. He was the one to to spearhead that in 1990, um, and I was 15 years old, 15, 16 years old, and I heard that. I remember uh, getting getting the cassette tapes. Uh, because uh, I was at the conference, I was in and out of the in and out of the service because it was like you know a big conference, and I was doing security. I was a teenager, so I was kind of helping, you know, volunteering. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, that night, you know, after the service was over, it was like a three-hour message, you know, and no one left. It was just like that, you know, that powerful, impactful. And I remember my mom telling me like that next morning. It was a Thursday night. He spoke. The next morning was Friday morning. She said, "You miss God, man. You 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 should have been there." I said, "I was there. I was just in and out." You know, but I'm a teenager, so I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Right. Then, then she handed me, the, you know, she handed me the cassette tapes. You know, I'm I'm taking it back. You know, this 1990. You know, we had the Walkman and the the <laughs> that whole, you know, click clack, rewind, fast and play, uh, fast forward and play. Um, so I, so the conference was over that Friday. So Saturday morning, I said, all right, I'm I'm a, I'm gonna go ahead and and uh, check this out. You know, I was living in Oklahoma at the time, Tulsa, Oklahoma. We was just like maybe a mile from. Well, not even a mile, maybe a half a mile from Old Roberts University because my mom, she was a student there at the time. Mm. And uh, so 
I, I put the uh, he- headphones on, the Walkman on, and I walk. I, I can't remember how how far I walked, but for three hours I wow. listened to this guy, and I was like in tears, um, for the first time. Because for me, we grew up. I grew up, uh, you know, my brother and, and myself, of course my mom as well, grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so when we moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, it was a tremendous culture shock for me because, you know, I grew up, you know, in, in a, a more urban area. Mm-hmm. You know, we only had like one white dude on, on our on our street. You know, his name was, we called him Orange Juice because his hair was orange. And so, <laughs> so it's... So his name was Juice, you know, but he was like, that's a he good was like, nickname. I want that yeah. nickname, Juice. <laughs> Juice, what's up, Juice? You know, uh, uh, it'd be great to see him today. But so, you know, he was one, of, you know, he was one of the brothers in the hood. You know, he was like, you know, he was like the Eminem, you know what I'm saying? Right. In terms of that, you know, in, in the hood. So uh, and even the school I went to was uh, it was multicultural, but it still was a very urban because it was in an urban community. We, you know, we got bus there, but it was still an urban community, like a maybe literally like two blocks away was like the projects and big time drug dealers and mm. gangbangers. You know, it was it was kind of like, I don't know if you ever seen Lean On Me, the movie Lean mm-hmm. On Me yeah. with Morgan Freeman. That was my school times times 10. You know, they they had a shut. You know, when they when the bell rang, they locked us in the uh, school. They had chains on the. You know, it was because drug dealers come in, people get you know stabbed and the whole thing. Wow. So, so I came from that culture. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it was for me. It was all about survival. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Even though in our mind we're not thinking, oh, every day I got survived. It was just more so like this is how we live. You know this. You know. So even. You know, I was I was smart, dude. You know, I, I had glasses. You know, I was like a nerd. You know what I'm saying? I was like the church boy nerdy dude, you know, but kind of was street, you know. <laughs> uh, so um, my best friend, I had two best friends. Both of them were drug dealers, you know, mm-hmm. at, at the school, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, both of them were named with Tyrone, you know, so that, you know, the stereotypical Tyrone. But and uh, one of the Tyrones, uh, I used to do his homework, you know, mm-hmm. I used to do it <laughs> every yeah. every project we had. Every homework assignment, but he paid me. He paid me. He paid me in, in knots. He, you know, sometimes he would just buy a whole bunch of candy from the liquor store and bring it to me. That I, I sell that at school, you know, make some money. So I had my little hustle on. The, You're an entrepreneur <laughs> from day one. You know, from day one. So, so coming from that environment and, and and you know just even being on on the on the school bus, you know, you know coming you know uh, from from where I lived all the way to uh, the uh, north side of Charlotte to go to school. Even the school bus, that was a culture shock when I moved to Tulsa because on our school bus, we had a uh, bus driver. His name was No Teeth Joe. I, 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 I kid you. <laughs> that was his name. <laughs> his name was No Teeth Joe because he was, he was a, well, he was a former crackhead, but I think he was still smoking crack because he, no he had no teeth. And that's why we called him No Teeth Joe. But he was like 40 years old. You know, we on there, we like seven, eighth graders, sixth graders. But he would get in fist fights with some of the eighth graders, literally. The, the bus driver? The bus driver, you know, because they'd be talking smack to him, you know what I'm saying? You, it's the hood, you know what I'm saying? They'd be like, yo, you know, yo, no teeth, Joe, woo, woo, you know what I'm saying? Wait, this He'll is in North it. Carolina or Oklahoma? This is, this is in Charlotte. Okay, Charlotte, know? okay. So this is the culture I grew up in, so, you know right. what I'm saying? So he'll pull the bus over, everybody like, yo, yo, yo. And like he get it, they be, they be like, they be fist squared up in the middle, squared up in the and so. So that's that's the environment I came out of. So, you know, moving to Tulsa in, in 88, you know, going to, you know, ninth grade, 
the very first thing that that blew me away is when I got onto the school bus and it was like Mary Poppins. You know what I'm saying? It was mm-hmm. like it was like clean. It was like what? You know, I'm like wow. what is this? Cuz I was used to like you know, graffiti all in, all inside the bus, you know, the the seats all torn up. You know, I've seen girls get raped on the bus, you know what I'm saying? You know, I'm a sixth and seventh, eighth, eighth grader. I've seen I've seen girls get molested on the bus, you know, in the back seat. You know what I'm saying? I I so so although it wasn't normal, that was normal to us. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? That was like this is what you know, this is what the hood is, this is what it is, you know what I'm saying? That mentality. Mm-hmm. So being on the school bus in Jinx, going to Jinx, Oklahoma, I mean Jinx High School uh in Jinx is right next to Tulsa. I was like, man, yo, this ain't Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like Dorothy, you're not in Kansas no more. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, so, so for me, so a couple of years, you know, from 88 to 90, I really struggled with that. You know, I really struggled with, the, with a sense of identity, mm. a sense of purpose. Like, man, you know, I, I remember my brother, you know, my older brother, Manuelo, and I, we, we, we made a pact, you know, that first year in school in in, in, in in Tulsa and Jinx, we said, okay, next summer, we gonna, when we go back home to Charlotte, we ain't coming back. We're going to tell our mama, grandma going to take care of us. You know what I'm saying? So we was like, yeah, we ain't coming back. So we we made this pact. So when the summer came up, you know, summer 89, we left. We went back to Charlotte, you know, quote, unquote, to go visit. <laughs> but in our mind, we going to stay, bro. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? We was there for two weeks. We was like, yo, we got to get out of here. Yo, we not nah, because too many of our friends was getting killed. You know, I had a my best friend at the time. We both had the same name, uh, first and middle name, Darius Lamar. I was Darius Lamar West. He was Darius Lamar. I forget his last name, but we we was like you know homeboys, kicked it. That same summer, man, he got shot in the face over a coat. I said, yeah, no, nah, we gotta get out, <laughs> dude. We need to go back to Oklahoma. We need to go back to where it's safe. And wow. we was like, mama. You know, we were supposed to stay, stay there the whole summer. We was like, nah, two weeks, we 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 got we gotta get up out of here. We gotta get up out of here. So and so that change in, in environment, wow, you know, changed our perspective. Cause we we went although we went back home to Charlotte, it was like, yo, this ain't home no more. <laughs> you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? This ain't you know, we gotta go back to Tulsa, we gotta go back to Oklahoma because you know, I think that that's what happens a lot of times when people and I had a friend of mine who, you know, during the COVID situation, he was at home by himself, he was missing family. You know, whole thing. And he's like, man, I got to move back, man. I was like, you know, you're going to give up everything that you done built over the last eight years. You've been in L.A. You're just going, you know, oh, man, I, I never. And and his answer was, it was very synonymous to what my mindset was in 89 the summer. He's like, man, I never grew up as an adult in, in you know, back in, uh, in Ohio and, you know, Columbus, man. I really want to be around family and know what it means to be an adult there. I was like, all right. But in the back of my mind, I say, he's going to be back. Mm. He gonna be, he, it's going to be like a week and a half. He's going to be like, hey, dude, what I'm doing? So he packed up everything. His cousin flew in. They drive it. He, you know, he's sending me pictures, you know, Instagram and stuff about, hey, heading back to Ohio. Man, I am a week late. He called and said, dude, I got to get out of here. <laughs> he said, I got to get back to L.A. I made the biggest mistake of my life. I said, really? man, I, I've been there. So, but I didn't want to tell you, but I knew I was going to get that call because I've been there, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, you know, of course he came back, he's back doing his music. He saw his size like, man, I'm so glad I came back. And so that's what happens is that we get it. We, you know, uh, and I, I, like I said, for me, it was a confidence thing. It yeah. was an identity thing. It was like, man, I'm, this is not my, I'm not used to this culture. I'm not used to this environment, 
But then you go back to the environment that you came out of. You're like, uh, nah, I'm good. Let me totally. go back to <laughs> to where I'm supposed to be. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I relate to that so much. And like, you can't, you can say, like, you can tell your friend, like, I think you're going to be back. But like, people need to experience it for themselves to like really yeah. know. You know what I mean? Exactly. So you, when you were 16 and you listened to The Power of Purpose, you were in Oklahoma at that time. And yeah. what, like, what message, in, in that messaging, what for you made you confident? Just hearing that, like, what, like, that you needed a purpose and what was your, if so, like, what was that purpose and what did that sort of give to your confidence? I think it was twofold. Uh, um, one, hearing someone speak about purpose that I've never heard that word, even up to the point, maybe I heard it in passing, but never really understood it. You know mm. what I'm saying? But but the way he he, uh, Dr. Miles Monroe had put it, he said, uh, you know, uh, his principles. He said, everything in life has a purpose. Uh, I'm just giving you some things he said, and uh, although a purpose is not known, giving an example, there's a purpose for. The, the caterpillar. There's a purpose for, you know, the wall. There's a purpose for, you know, the bird. There's a purpose for everything in life. But just because you don't know the purpose for it doesn't mean it does not have a purpose. Mm. And, say, and, when pur- and when purpose is not known, abuse is inevitable. In other words, when you don't know the purpose of a thing, you'll eventually abuse it. He said that's why, uh, you know, he said the, the term abuse actually comes from two words, you know, it, the British language means abnormal use. That means there's a normal use for a thing. So when you hear someone say they're uh, uh, they're a drug addict or they're abusing drugs, that means there's also a normal use for drugs. And so he says, so when you don't know the purpose of a thing, you will abuse it. You know, so this is that's why he said there's there's a thing called wife abuse, child abuse, drug abuse, alcoholic abuse. You know, and just and, and, and the things that seem so simple, that but they're so profound. And and then he. Uh, connects it back to God. It says, when you you never ask the thing, uh, you never go to a thing and ask for its, ask what its purpose is. In other words, okay, I can go to this laptop. Oh, great laptop made by Apple. You know, and Steve Jobs, your, your image on him. What is your purpose? The message in that is, you never go to the thing to ask the purpose. You always go to the manufacturer of the thing to find out the purpose. He says, because on everything that's created, mankind. The, the car we drive, the bed we live in, uh, sleep in, the clothes we wear has the image stamped on that that product. You know, whether it's Gucci or Fendi or, you know, Toyota, the image of that product is uh, uh, is from the manufacturer. So he says, when we talk about ourselves, we don't ask ourselves or go to my mama, mama, what's my purpose? Because she don't know. You have to go to God because he is the manufacturer. He's the one that created you, and his image is stamped on, stamped on you because it says that that we were created in his image. So in order for you to find out why you're here, you have to go to the original, uh, original manufacturer. So he's really defining and, and helping us understand that purpose is the reason for why you're here. He says it's not so much to know what. You also need to know why. So that, that, that impacted my life. But also then he began to uh, this is 30 years ago, which is, you know, so prevalent for uh, um, so beneficial for today. He talked about the the purpose for people. There are purposes, purposes for people. So purpose purposes for nations of people. 
you know, Acts 17, 24, it talks about that, that God had, uh, uh, God has placed people in, in, in nations and boundaries for them to, uh, uh, for the purpose of bringing people to him. And he talked about how the, the African Africans came over in, on slavery and ships. He says, because he said, one of the things it was great. And he showed us even through scripture. This is, this is one of the things that really impacted me because growing up as a black young man, in a in in Christianity, uh, I was never taught, or it was never taught directly or even indirectly, the existence of people of color in the Bible. It was always like you know you, you see the picture of the white Jesus, and you know you see the uh, the movie of Moses and Noah. Everybody's white, you know. Mm-hmm. So you you just like it becomes although it's not taught to you, that's what you see. Right. So as a as a young black man who came from the hood around mostly black and urban people. Then I go to Tulsa and I'm like 90% white people. I'm like, I don't fit. So him speaking about the purpose of, of, of the colored people in terms of the Bible and what God is saying, that blew my mind. And my confidence shot from there. As a matter of fact, I would listen to his tapes like as I went to sleep over and over again to where I, I, I knew it. I could, I could sit down with somebody and just like verbatim, just like say his message. Cause I, 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 I I I embodied that and I became that person who was all about why am I here? Mm. And I would ask people like, why are you here? I don't know. You need to ask God. You just, you know, and, and just like, you know, and I became in Tulsa at 16 years old, Darius, the little miles, you know what I'm saying? So it became, you know, and, and so I embodied that. So my pastor at the time, who was Bishop Colton Pearson, he heard about it because Miles, it was at the conference that, that we had, our church had. He heard about his his uh, my my love for Miles and his teachings because I, I I started buying his books and listening and everything, mm-hmm. and so so every time that Miles came into Tulsa, I was with whoever picked him up from the airport and I would spend I would spend time with him and he would pour into me he tell me things and there'd be other times that I'll be speaking at the U conference and he'll be at the same conference and we'll see each other in the elevator like why are you here I'm, I'm and so our lives kind of parallel in that sense but that was the moment. In 1990, summer that changed my life, and to where my confidence—not only just in being a black man, but my confidence in just knowing that I had a purpose, mm-hmm. that I was here for a reason. When you say, when you talk a little bit about like seeing white, like a white Jesus, a white Moses, and and hearing these these talks and these lectures, um, how did, how does representation of black people and people of color, it sounds like that that was really influential for your confidence, seeing yourself or, um, just like other black folks or people of color represented in this way was like super helpful for your confidence. Can you speak a little bit on that in regards to whether it's, uh, related to the Bible or whether it's related to just like uh, just in society seeing a reflection like how is that impactful for you and your confidence? Yeah, I, I think identity identity is a tremendous thing for people, mm-hmm. especially for young people as they're growing up. Uh, you know, the the whole idea of mentorship is to see yourself in someone else and say, I want to be like them. Um and and I think that's more so today. You know that's why you know we look at people like Malcolm X's, we look at Megger, uh, Egger, we look at uh, uh, um, 
Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. We look at uh, Emmett Till. People, people that that made a difference, even though they were they were killed and things like that. And the tragedies. We see ourselves like, man, that's that that could be me. Like uh, uh, case in point, Kobe Bryant. When Kobe Bryant passed away at the top of this year, it shocked the world. Mm-hmm. And Kobe Bryant, in a sense, transcended race and, and culture. But when a lot of young people, when they saw Kobe, they saw themselves. Right. You know, when they saw Barack, they saw themselves. Right. When they, you know, when black women saw Michelle, like Michelle Obama, like, oh, my God, it's possible. And, and I think identity makes things possible, gives us the the confidence that, man, this is possible. Yeah. You know, you know, it's possible that I can do something great. It's possible that, you know, you know. What I'm thinking, because, you know, I, I, my, my grandmother, my mom, of course, my dad as well, they grew up in the era that, you know, uh, especially my, my grandma and my great-grandma grew up in the area of the Jim Crow laws. So right. you was told that, hey, you can't do this thing. So you can't be a doctor. You can't be a scientist. You know what I'm saying? So, so my, grandmother, my grandmother was one of those women who were like, if you've seen the movie The Help, so, you know, she was one of those women that, that took care of, mm-hmm. of of, of a white a family's baby mm-hmm. take care of the house you know and she did that with her mom as well so you know so they grew up in the in in in, in that that era where this is all you can attain to you know what i'm saying as, as a black woman you know what i'm saying yeah. you, you, you're thinking beyond this you know that's crazy talk you're not gonna do that so so that's what my mom and and my my aunts and things like that that's what they saw you know this is all I, you know, I don't know. So is so when you get, you know, to the uh, late seventies to early eighties, and you have different other shows that are more positive, uh, black influences like the Bill Cosby Show, then you have like, uh, what's it, Living Single, you know, just mm-hmm. things that are like, you're like, man, you know, you know, these are some successful people. They they're not just like, you know, drug dealers or they're not just criminals. These are people that, man, I can be like that. I I don't have to be like the doughboy on the corner. I don't have to be, you know, you know, the crackhead on the street. I can be something. And so the identity is a tremendous thing for someone to see, not the negative uh, a picture of who you are, but also the positive picture of who you can be. Totally. And yeah. that is, and, and as like a white woman, I get to see, I mean, maybe less so than a white man myself represented, but I still get to see myself represented on screen or, you know, in, in what, just in life more in a positive way. And I never even stupidly, I never even thought about it any other way, you know? And, and, and that's huge seeing, seeing a representation of your identity so that you can aspire to be this great thing. Um, did you ever have you ever encountered something in your life, whether it was in childhood or adulthood, that like really shook your confidence, that like knocked you down at all? And if so, like how did you pick yourself back up and and refuel that like confidence in you? Uh, man, let me think. <laughs> I, 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 hmm. Whether it's like it could be in like your work life, whether it's like yeah. a moment directing where you got your confidence knocked back, or maybe like in your personal life with relationships, I don't know. A lot, everybody yeah. has a different moment in their life yeah. where they their confidence took a hit. Yeah, yeah, I I, th- I think probably more so. Um, 
Or maybe you're just a really confident dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying, yeah, I'm trying to think of what I wasn't confident. Uh, you know, I would say there have been some hits, yeah. you know, that made me doubt myself. You know what I'm saying? Moments where I doubt myself uh, in life. And I think that happens to a lot of people uh, because when you fail, I, I think what I've learned is that failure is a part of success. Ooh, uh, I'm writing that down. I'm writing all these things down, by <laughs> okay, the way. Okay, no. so. Failure is a part of success. Yes. When did when do you feel like you have failed? It was it was I I in, I was in San Diego. I was um, I was a single uh, single man. I was producing a theatrical show called Club Sugar, which is I'm gonna do that eventually again. Uh, and and uh, you know it was a great cast. It was all you know original music, original songwriting and production. You know you have I wrote the script and everything. And we did it in uh, San Diego downtown, the Horton Plaza, San Diego Repertory Theater. I had a budget of like ten thousand dollars, you know, and you know he had a great set, man. It was it was you know two level. It was it was it was crazy. It stage, was great, man. Is this a stage production? Stage production. Okay. And uh, so and you know and. We didn't make the ticket sales, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I, we had people come through. Everybody loved it. So, you know, some people came through, saw, saw it more than once. But you know, I think probably maybe we made probably maybe two thousand dollars. So I was in the hole like eight grand. Right. And I got I got all these actors and you know yeah. everybody looking at me like you know how you gonna you get paid and I you know and then it, it had you know become like a lawsuit when they was like you know, suing me and I'm like, dude, I'm just like, I'm just trying to you know and so. You know, for me, I felt, I felt, I felt like a failure. I felt yeah. like, man, dude, what am I doing? You know, totally. you know, and so I had to go through that, you know, and and thank God that, you know, um, I didn't have to pay because they end up, we end up doing, I don't know what judge show it was, but well, they they look at, I guess all these different judge shows, they go to the different uh, courthouses and see what small claim cases are there, and they're like, oh, let's take this. So they took on the case, like, you know, Darius West versus, you know, whatever. Wow. <laughs> So they flew me. I think it was in Houston or something. They flew me to Houston. The whole thing to take the show, and the, and and the thing was, is like, okay, it's a win-win because even if I lose, I ain't got to pay nothing. Everything right. gets paid from the show to right. you know to the people, you know. And so, although it was a hit on my uh, like my uh, my right. confidence in a yeah. sense, I came out like felt like, oh, this is a way of escape. I don't owe these people anything. I apologize. Like, you know, I, I did my best, whatever. Yeah. But I I I learned that. In order to be successful, you must experience failure because the thing is, people who quit are the people who fail but but gave up. Mm-hmm. The people who are successful are the people who failed that did not give up. And so that's why I learned. That's one. That was one of the really life. I was, you know, my mid, you know, late twenties about that about this time. Um, and that's when I learned, you know, failure is a part of success. Miles Rowe talk, talks about success a lot. He says, you know. Um, in order to succeed, you must first fail because, you know, look how many times, you know, Thomas Edison tried to make the light bulb, you know, so many times, you know, so many failures. But it was that one time to succeed and and failure is not so much failure. I don't look at life as having problems. I see them as opportunities to maximize my potential. And so when I when something happens, I was like, OK, this happened. God knew this would happen. So he knew I could overcome it. He knew I can beat this thing because he said that he would never allow you to face something unless you were able to handle it. So I can handle this. I can overcome this. So 
So failure to me is more so about the process it takes to become successful. We go through this process and, and a lot of it is like, you know, the, the, the bumps and bruises in life and, you know, relationships and you, you lost a job. And, you know, I think of Joseph, you know, you know, when he had the dream and he told his mom and his brothers and they was like, they threw him in the pit, but then he was in the pit. He got sold into slavery. Then he ended up in prison. And he was like, his whole life was like, Boo. but he became the leader, you know, uh, next to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. But he had to go through a life of tremendous process to get to where he where where he knew God wanted him to be. David was crowned king when he was 12 years old, but he didn't become king till he was in his 30s. But so the last so by a span of 18 to 20 years, he was going through a whole lot. He was running from Saul. He was trying not to get killed. He was like writing in the song, man, my enemies are surrounding. I'm, I'm going to die. <laughs> you know, it's like, dude, this dude sounds depressed, you know, but he said, but God, I trust you. You know what I'm saying? So but then he's king one day like, man, I'm glad I went through that. And so that's what I see even through the process of doing my drop, you know, this four or five, four or five year period, just the process of, you know, having to shut down production, investors pulling out, you know, not sure of distribution and, you know, and being at the point like where uh, when we had no money, but then a call comes in, we got money. It's like, <laughs> uh, you know, then, you you know, like we turned the film in 2017 to Warner's like we love it. We like it, but we don't love it. We got to change this. You know, it's like, uh, but then it's 2020. And you're like, wow, I'm glad I went through that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, and just so I see it as I've I've learned over the since I've been here uh, the last four to five four or five years that I've been working on my drop, I've learned that God's timing is so much better than my own timing, and so I don't get stressed. And I, I was you know, you know, several times I was stressed, but I don't get stressed anymore. It's like when something happens, like okay, it'll work out. It, it's all good. I've I've been through this before. It's cool. <laughs> that's that's so powerful though. Like Yeah. Especially uh you speak on like the mindset of thinking of failure as an opportunity and even I mean, I can only speak for myself, but even that is like hard, you know? Yeah. It's hard to flip that switch and think of failure as an opportunity. It sounds yeah. like you really lean on faith and God and um, uh, I guess faith is probably the biggest one, that it's going to work out the way that God intended um, or the universe intends or however yeah. people want to want to think of it. Um, but still, it's a struggle. I, I definitely struggle with that, like with my failures and trying to see it, trying to like change the perspective. Yeah. I think it's hard. Um when do you feel most confident in your life? Uh, I think it, it's, it's just being surrounded around my family and my wife and kids and their, you know, continued support mm. and, and knowing that my, my confidence uh, not so much lies on them, it, 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 it lies on the fact that what I'm doing is for them. And that, and 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 that it's not about me, you know. And it took me a while to get there, you know. I I receive, I receive my vision and purpose 
and what I what I was born to do at 19. So at 16, I was you know I get impacted by Miles' a message and and you know continue to uh, see God. But it was it was 19 when God showed me why I was here. The, the vision was so clear. I was I was I was just off tour with Carmen. It was the spring, uh, the summer summer break or something of uh, 94. Um, a 94, 95, I can't remember. But I remember riding in the car. I think it was my, uh, I can't remember who was driving, but I was in, in the passenger seat. It was like I wasn't even there. And, I, and it was like I was driving toward this this humongous building. And it was like, what is this? And and, and God showed me, this is what I've called you to do, uh, you know, to build a a uh, a multimedia uh, corporation for the advancement of God's kingdom in the area of film, arts, and everything. But you have to remember, when God is telling me this, I'm like, dude, I'm just a dancer. <laughs> you know what You're like, what so, is this? What do you mean? <laughs> so, so immediately I feel disqualified, you know, right to, uh, to do it. And, and I think that's one of the, you know, indications that, you know, that what you're supposed to be doing, you didn't, you didn't make it up. God had to give it to you because there's no way you can make this happen. There's no way at this time I was 19. What do I know about this? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I'm living out of a suitcase traveling around the nation as a dancer, you know, you know, on the tour bus, what, you know, and so, but what I did was I just, you know, I wrote down the vision, I made it plain. Okay. I know this is where I'm going and I don't know when it's going to happen, but I got, I got to just stay in my lane and just whatever this season is, I'm a dancer. Let me just, you know, keep dancing, just pursue, pursue what God has for me. I don't know. And for me, I always see it as, when you look at vision, you look at your destination where you're going and your destination is always afar off. But the closer and closer you walk towards it, it becomes more, much more clearer. You know, I get the analogy of like if you're walking, you know, down the street, you're trying to go to Target. Target's like a mile off. You can see the big Target sign, but you can't see any details of the store. You don't know how many cars in the parking lot. You don't know anything. But the closer and closer you get to Target things become much more clear. You're like, oh man, toilet paper's on sale. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I can see that a mile off, you know what I'm saying? And so that's how I see vision. At 19, what I saw was t- the target sign. But the, you know, I'm, I'm 45 now, and I, it's like I've already stepped into the door. Mm-hmm. I'm good. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm about to pursue what I saw at 19. And so for me, the, the confidence was always about where I'm going. That, that's what kept me disciplined as a young man. It's like, I know where I'm going and I have an acute awareness of my time. So I don't have time to waste time because time is all I have because time is of the essence. And so I would do my best as a young man to not waste time, to to be be intentional with my time, the people I hung out with, um, the, the things I did, it, it it had to line up to where I was going. And, you know, just even being here in L.A., you know, you get pulled, you know, so many different ways. Totally. Uh, <laughs> and I think what for me just continuing to, to have a close relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, Christ, is that when when God speaks to me, he's very he's very he's very direct. It's like this is what I need you to focus on. Boom, boom, boom. And if it has nothing to do with this. It has nothing to do with where you're going. So I've, I've had to say, no, nah, I can't do that, bro. Oh, I can't do that. You know, I had a pastor friend like, hey, man, we're going to open up a, 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 you know, a church up in L.A. We want you to be the worship pastor. Nah, man, this is what God said, dude. That sounds cool. 
and I, I'm sure you'll find somebody, but I'm not your guy. I can do it, but that means I'll be outside of God's will. And I'm and, and I'm delaying my own destiny to help you fulfill yours. And that's not what God has me to so do. So it's almost like knowing what your priorities are. Yes, definitely. And, and sticking to that. And even yeah. if that means that you have to say no to some people. Um, yeah. And knowing that that's still the right decision for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's never easy to say no. It just gets easier to say no. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> If that makes sense. Yeah. How has confidence, um, how has your confidence been affected by being a parent? And have you had any struggles with it at all? I, I think I prepared um, to be a parent before I was a parent. Because, you know, as a single man, a uh, young man, I was, I would go to, you know, marriage conferences. Most of my friends were like uh, married with kids. So I was already thinking, I know I need a wife. I mean, even when I, I, I got divorced from, from my, my two daughters, um, my two oldest daughters, mom, you know, you know, she, you know, did what she did. And so I was left with my two daughters, but I knew that, you know, everything I'm doing is for them. You know, I, I knew coming in and, and one kids, this is my legacy. This is what I'm doing this for them because when I'm 80 years old, 85 years old, I have grandkids. They'd be like, Papa, we love you. I said, yeah, this is for you. I've learned that what God showed me at 19, it took me maybe, you know, until I was like maybe 30, 33 to realize it wasn't for me. Mm. And then I realized, whoa, that I had this revelation of a tree, a tree, a tree growing and having fruit. It could be mangoes or apples or oranges, pomegranate, but the tree never gets to benefit from the fruit. Mm. It only grows it. People come by and benefit from the fruit. And I saw myself as that tree, God using me to to build this legacy for my family and for a generation. But I won't really be able to want to benefit from it in terms of seeing it go beyond my, my life. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so that really put my life in perspective to know that what I'm building is for the purpose of legacy as opposed to the purpose of me. Mm. So my... And that's the difference, you know. It's either legacy or leg of me. No, it's leg it's legacy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so that's why for me, I, I I don't I don't, you know, see myself putting Darius West productions or Dar you know, I, it ain't about me. I'm building this so so my kids can one day and say, continue to to, to continue with this that I that we built for them and throughout generations. So I, I see even now what's happening in culture and society, yeah. how how God is using us as generation, I see generation X to build a platform for generation millennials and generation Z. You know, what's happening right now is is profound and and you know, because I I always take a step back and look at the big picture. Yeah. I, I try not to get, you know, too wrapped up in to the, you know, the small things because I had to step take a step back and look at the big picture. I talked to my grandma, she's, you know, she's almost pushing 90. She said, I've never seen this happen in my lifetime. You know, this globally, this this kind of societal change, you know, that's happening. Talk to my, my dad, you know, who, who was getting, you know, hit hit by rocks and stuff when it, when schools got desegregated, you know, hit by rocks, just going to class. He said, I've never seen this, you know what I'm saying? And so so I, I always take a step back and look and I started thinking, OK. Last year, 2019, 
was was a mark of 400 years since the first slave ship came to America in 1619. It was 400 years last year. And this is the year after the 400th year. So I, I have to go back. So, so I, let me, I always do this. I always have a Bible in one hand and, the, and a newspaper in the next. <laughs> in other words, I need to see how things p- compare. So, you know, one of the most famous stories, of course, we know is Moses and the Israelites. And the Israelites in slavery for 400 years. And then God says, okay, I've heard the prayers of my people for 400 years. Now, Moses, let's go and deliver them. Let's go free them from oppression. And I, and I, I saw the comparison of the same thing here in America, that 250 years of slavery, 150 years, I mean, 100 years of Jim Crow, and then past 50 something to 60 years, we, we just had desegregation of schools, but there's still been oppression that's, you know, uh, flooded over from the Jim Crow days. And I said, I said, let's imagine that the Negro spirituals that we love to sing, those slaves in the cotton fields who were praying out to God, who saw who when they read the Bible or were able to read the Bible, they saw Moses and the Israelites as their anchor, as something to be delivered from later in life. So they were like, wait in water. There was. That was connected to Moses being placed into the water, you know, so he wouldn't get killed. Then, of course, Pharaoh's daughter found him in the water. You know, uh, one day we'd be free. All these Negro spirituals that they heard these slaves write and sing and, and you know, so, oh, they're, they're happy here. They're just singing. These were the prayers that God has heard over the span of 400 years, four centuries. He says, OK, now it's time. Because what happened after the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years, God said, I've heard the prayers of, of my people. Let's go free them. What happened? He brought disruption to society. He brought plagues and messed up Egypt's society because you got to remember, Egypt was the world empire at that time. So everything came through Egypt. You know, if you were from Asia, you you went to Egypt for for some trading and 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 societal things. If you was like in another country, you came and you were on boat. You were, Egypt was the center center of, of of the planet at that time. So the plagues that were happening were happening not only to the Egyptians, but also people who were there just visiting, doing business. And so it so I can imagine, like even today, when the pandemic hit here and the plagues that were hitting there, there were people dying. You know, it started with with the with the blood in the water and God, you know, God always used natural occurrences to do things on the earth. There was blood in the water in the rivers of Egypt. There was the first plague. And the only animals that could get out of the water were frogs. So that's why they jumped out. And that's why the second plague was frogs infesting the whole land of Egypt. But 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 the frogs uh, uh, were poisoned from the blood that they had swallowed in the water. So they began to die. Then the infestation of flies. <sighs> Then the flies die after about two days because they, they've already embedded their lava inside the frogs. So then the frogs have the lava. Then the lava gets into the food supply. And then the people eating the food, they get boils. It's like every plague, it was like – but the only thing that stopped the plagues is when Pharaoh's heart got softened. Something happened to him directly that affected his life. He said, let him go. In other words, he had to admit that there was oppression. He had to admit that things are wrong. Mm-hmm. Same thing happened at the time of David. 
David, as a leader of Israel, 2 Samuel 24, as a leader of Israel, he had sinned against God. And God brought a pestilence on the nation of Israel that lasted for three days. 70,000 people died in Scripture. And the reason why I stopped is because David said, God, David pleaded with God, please stop. This has nothing to do with them. This is, this is me. I'm sorry. I admit I was wrong. And then the Bible says that God spoke to the to the angel, it says they've had enough. Stop the pestilence. And I said it all to say this. God's methods. We should never be surprised by God's method because he, he's doing the same thing. Oh, he's the same yesterday, today and forevermore. So he did it at the time of Pharaoh. He did it during the time of David at that time. And now, in my estimation, I'm like, God is like waiting for the leader of this nation to say we were wrong. So God can say, okay, let's take it away. Because everything that's happening now with the NASCAR, banning the Confederate flag, these yeah. statues that have been taken down, yeah. you know, uh, we're in a season now where people are being forced. They're not volunteering. They're being forced to make change. And this this is the season where God's saying, okay, you have this season to make the changes you need to make. And I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the leaders of this nation to to to, to submit to that change. And until that happens, we're going to still be in this pandemic. We're still going to be dealing with you know, Egypt had nine plagues, but we don't know how how long did that take place. And God was just waiting for Pharaoh to be like, "Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm good." And so I think, you know, I I'm speaking this. I feel prophetically. I believe that something has to happen directly to the leadership of this nation for them to open their eyes and really see. So you think Donald Trump has to be like, "I fucked up." I I in so many words. Yeah. In so many words. <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. put it in. <laughs> Yeah, in yeah, my yeah, yeah. profane term. Because because if you, like I said, it, I always have to look at the Bible as a reference. Because with Pharaoh, it's the same thing. Boom. David, it's the same thing. Sorry. And God's like, okay, we're good. And so we're just living at a time, you know, you know, and that's why I, I said I don't get caught up in the whole, well, Dr. Fauci, maybe he and Bill Gates. I said, I don't care about all that because God is in control. You know, you know, the year started off, and I, I'll give you this. The year started off, and that's why I always have to take a step back and look at the big picture. If we think about how the year started off, we have it the, uh, in the film industry, you know, it's called the rule of threes. When something happens yeah. in the film for the first time, it's a coincidence. Like, oh, yeah, man, that's that's terrible. But then it, then something similar happens again. You're like, whoa, hello. It becomes like a pattern. Right. Then the third time, the, either the pattern breaks or it just like really lets us know what, why the first thing happened. Yeah, it's the same thing with comedy stuff, too. So exactly, exactly. And God is God works a lot in the same way. The first thing that happened in 2020 that shook that shook the world was Kobe Bryant died. Not only died, but the fashion that he and his daughter and those people on the helicopter, the way they died. And the whole world was in shock. It it was like it, it was a moment where people began to question their mortality. Like, man, if that happened to Kobe. Ooh, dude, who am I? He was just 40 and he was on his way. You know, he, he, wow. You know, and people just like confused, like, oh my God, you know, you have the mask. I was, in, I was down at the Staples Center when it happened. So you had everybody down there. It was the Grammys, you know, and people just coming from everywhere, just honored. It was just like the whole world was affected by that. Yeah. 
Then a month, a month and a half, two months later, boom, COVID-19. Then everything, the whole world is shut down. Economy, uh, travel, you know, jobs, food. It was just like, this has never happened. And to me, I was like, okay, the first time something happened, it was a coincidence. Like, man, this is crazy. Kobe died. But then, bam, COVID-19 was like, what's going on here? Some, so 2020, is, it sounds, it's just crazy. And so when the third thing took place that, that, that shook the world was George Floyd being killed. And to me, I was like, oh, my God, that's it. God was getting our attention in January. Then in March, he said, okay, I'm going to show you that I'm about to do something. Pay attention. So everybody in the world is on their phones and on their laptops, on social media. So when the moment George Floyd died, we could see it. And God says, that's why. This is why. This is what I want you to see. So change can start happening. What's been happening? Society has been changing since George Floyd. See, people don't think about Kobe. COVID and George Floyd. God, that's why for me, it's like, okay, God, you're doing this thing. And the way you're doing it, people, I, I put it like this. You may not want to agree with the methods of God, but you have to agree with, with God. Because he doesn't need your permission. Because he's sovereign. So as, as a man, as a black man, as a believer, I always have to take a step back and say, what is God doing? Because he knew this day was going to happen even before anybody was born. So it was not a surprise to him. It's only a surprise to us. So that's what keeps me level-headed. That's what keeps me at a sense of, okay, now we need to take action. What is, what is God requiring us as believers, as, as, as men, as women, as black, white, Asian? What is God requiring of us? You know, what does he want to do? What is he requiring of the leader of this nation? I, I, I told people, I say, so you may not like this. I'm not Democrat or Republican. I just I just uh, I vote based upon what I feel needs to take place. I said, but you I said, none of you, none of you guys that, that love me, you may not like this, but God needed Trump to be in office because none of this would have taken place if Hillary was in office. The division that he brought to this nation is what God needed, just like Pharaoh, God needed Pharaoh. God needed a Trump to be in office so that this, the division that was taking place over the last four years was preparing us for this moment to realize, oh, my God. It, 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 it uncovered. It took the cover off of racism. It took the cover off of systemic racism. It had been covered up for a while. It's kind of peeking here and there. But it over the past four years, it's been like. And God's like, it's time now. It's been revealed What's been hidden has what's been veiled is now unveiled, and now it's time for change, and we need to we need to be about it. I, I, I can go on with that, but that's that's kind of it's 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 hard to see in the moment that everything happens for a reason. You know, like you're speaking of Donald Trump being elected, and it's like in that moment we were all like, "Fuck this!" this exactly. Sucks. I was too. Like what in the world? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's hard to, it's hard to like take a step back and go, <clears throat> okay, even if I don't see the purpose for this in this moment, I'm going to have faith and believe that there is a greater purpose, even though what's in front of me sucks. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know? Yeah. And it's so hard, whether it's 
God or the universe or whatever verbiage yeah. language you want to use to describe it, it's knowing that that there is a greater purpose for what's happening right now. Yeah. Um, you know, even small things like sometimes I think like if my, my car doesn't start or something like that and I'm like, oh, great. Now I'm going to be late to this appointment. And it's like, well, wait a <laughs> second. What if the reason this car didn't start is because there was an accident that you wouldn't have avoided if, if it would exactly. have started things like that, like smaller exactly. things. And, um, yeah, perspective is huge. Exactly. Yeah. How are you feeling right now? Like just with the state of the world, do you, are you feeling like hopeful or are you feeling, how are you feeling? I, I, I feel, um, one yeah one I do feel hopeful I do feel hopeful, but also I I'm really believing during this time that um, people of faith will stand up and expose what's been hidden for so long and in in religion and just in the system and that we continue to to challenge that like I said we're we're at the the ground floor of building a platform and I don't want people to stop working. I, I want us to continue to work. I want us to continue to to um, to be be vocal, but not just vocal, but take action. Mm. Like what can do? I was speaking to a friend of mine. He's he's a pastor. Him and his wife was here uh, uh, having dinner here with my wife and I, just talking. He's like, man, you know, I've been thinking about the the uh, foster system. He says, and and it's, it's tremendous, you know, in America. But he said, just in L.A. alone, there's like 10 percent of the the foster care system is like 10 percent is here in L.A. And he says, if he says if every he said if every church in America had two people that adopted a foster kid, it'll wipe out the foster care system. We talking about like a small, you know. You got Joe Osteen has like sixty thousand, you know, forty five, six thousand million. But we only need two people from there. You know what I'm saying? And it puts, like I said, it puts it in perspective. Like we can change. And the reason why he said it is because he said 80% of the men and women who are in prison come from the foster care system. Wow. So if we can eradicate the foster care system by adopting the kids that need to be adopted, then we can see that decrease yeah, in the it's prison. Like, system. It's like getting to the root of the issue instead Get of it? treating the symptoms exactly. around it. Exactly. Exactly. So prison reform is great, but unless you deal with the root of the problem, which is a foster care system, it won't be reformed. It's going to be continued to be. You know, so it's like it's seeing, and I think that's what this pandemic has done. That's what you know, uh, the death of Kobe and also George Floyd. All those tragedies have done is caused people to think, because you can't go nowhere. Right. You got to start thinking. You know, you left to your else own to do, But yeah. think. Think and just like become up with solutions to 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 the root of the problems, and and so like even uh, um, something simple, the action, something simple like if you if I have a white neighbor that I you know had for months or years but never said hello to, it just takes a hey how you doing my name is Darius. It just takes that, and the more and more and more confident you come, the next thing you know you having dinner together and he's alone. It's just about taking those those little steps. Mm. To, to see change, you know, because people's like, oh, let's end racism. Okay, yeah, 
but then then, but then they're like now what okay we said <laughs> yeah. it now what do we do you said it that way you know so yeah. it, it's just it's those small steps it's, it's just that process to get to because uh, racism is not going to end overnight or racism is not going to end because people saw the george floyd uh video or it's because you march and you know held up a sign of black lives matter that's great but that's not going to end racism racism ends by infiltration you know i'll give you an example uh god said jesus said the kingdom of god is like a woman who who has has a dough and is and the kingdom of god is like like the, the yeast it's inside the dough because yeast is very is very small but over time it takes over the dough and that's what that is that's what it's called it's infiltration it's like just little by little seeds of compassion seeds of love seeds of you know relationship and and before you know it racism that is this big has now been overcome by compassion and love and support to where that's the only way you can eradicate racism is by doing the small things mm. it takes to infiltrate the system mm. you know well this has been such a wonderful talk um i'm gonna just read over the notes that I've taken uh, oh, yeah. for the audience to just, <laughs> nice. uh, you know, have it all in one place. Okay. So this is Darius's list for confidence. Okay. Power of knowing your purpose, change of perspective, finding your identity, seeing yourself represented in the world, knowing that failure is a part of success, thinking of failure as an opportunity, don't lose sight of where you're going. Be intentional with your time. Prioritize. It's okay to say no. Any other extra things you want to add to being how you got to be this confident man that you are? Just, just having a vision. Faith, faith in God and... Faith in God and just having a vision. Vision kept me disciplined. Love it. Yeah. Um. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, and thanks for asking me. Yeah, I love it. This is great. <laughs> I love hearing you speak, and you speak with such conviction and passion, and you're very thoughtful with your words. I can tell that you think about this stuff. You know, you don't. You're not just like spewing what comes to your mind because you've spent the time to think and study and know how you feel. And um, I really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of. How the fuck did you get so confident? I'd love to hear from listeners about things that have helped you build your confidence. Whether that's a mantra, a routine, maybe a favorite book or an event that you went through, leave it in the review section. Or if you have a question regarding confidence that you'd love to hear discussed on this podcast, you can leave that in the review section as well and I'll check it out. Thanks again. <laughs>